Chinatown in Lower Manhattan is known for its restaurants, shops, and festivals. But what about gang violence? Rewind to the turn of the 20th century, and you'll find the neighborhood was riddled with it. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Joining me today on the phone is Scott Seligman. Scott is the author of Tong Wars, the untold story of vice, money, and murder in New York's Chinatown. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. So let's start off with a definition. What are tongs? Well, the, the word in Chinese, the word tong, means um, a hall or, or an assembly. And um, uh, more broadly, it really means an organization of people. Uh, in, in the context of this book, it really refers to some underworld organizations uh, that were formed in uh, Chinatown at the, uh, the turn of the 20th century. And you are very familiar with the Chinese language. You yourself speak fluent Mandarin, right? I do indeed. Uh, but of course, nobody in Chinatown at the turn of the century spoke Mandarin. Uh, they all, most of them spoke Cantonese or a dialect of Cantonese called Toy San dialect. Uh, I've studied a little bit of that, but I'm, uh, I, you know, I can, I can get by in a taxi, but that's about all I can do. That said then, how different is New York's Chinatown today compared to the Chinatown you portray in this book? Well, let me tell you first what's, what's not different, and what's not different is the built environment. Um, a lot of the uh, time I spent working on the book, I was looking at old photographs of turn-of-the-century Chinatown and uh, comparing it to the Google Map pictures from today. And I would look up and count uh, windows and look at cornices and stuff, and I discovered that almost all of the locations where significant events happened in the Tong Wars, which went from the, basically from the turn of the century to the 30s, the buildings are still there. I mean, they have different storefronts, and there's certainly different businesses and things there, but um, the built environment is very much the same as it was and, um, and always was. Uh, New York Chinatown goes back to about the 1880s. That's when the Chinese first started to settle there. And although there are other Chinatowns in New York now, in Queens and, and some of the other boroughs, this is still the center of gravity, let's say, of, uh, of New York Chinatown. Chinese immigrants originally settled on the West Coast. What prompted them to come east and plant roots in Lower Manhattan? Well, uh, several things. Um, uh, after the, um, the the real migration happened after the Transcontinental Railroad was done, and that was in the um, uh, in the eight, late 1860s. The 1870s, the Chinese in the West, and there were a number of them, um, started to compete for jobs with uh, lower class whites, and um, they got their teeth handed to them. Sometimes it was just laws that were passed that were um, oppressive to them, but there was also violence against Chinese, and a lot of them went back to China at that point. And and some of them came east where there wasn't violence. And the Chinatowns of the Midwest and the East, the Chicago, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, they basically got their start in the 1870s. And, um, and New York Chinatown was no exception, but New York Chinatown was the big kahuna. It really was the center of gravity for Chinese on the East Coast and the Midwest. So what types of businesses and activities were the first Chinese immigrants involved in? Well, um, there were several of them. Uh, they're most closely probably associated with the laundry business uh, because that was, um, that was uh, fairly easy to get into. It didn't require a lot of money to set up, and it did not put Chinese in direct competition with lower-class white males. Uh, it was a, if anything, it was a business that women were involved in. But they also opened restaurants, and after a while, um, the uh, other Americans decided that they were going to try Chinese food and go into Chinatown, became a tourist center. They were cigar makers, and some of them were domestics as well. 
How did these tongs, these gangs, form in Lower Manhattan? Well, the, the Chinese, uh, almost from the beginning, they set up really three different types of organizations. One was um, essentially family circles. If your name was Wong, if your name was Li, there was a circle that, was, that had your name on it, and you could join simply by virtue of the fact that you had the same surname, even if you really weren't very closely related to the other people. So there were family circles. The second group was based on where in China you had come from and what dialect you spoke. Uh, the geographic associations, you could call them. So people from the Guangzhou area would have one. People from the Toisan area might have another or more than one. The third group, which is the one that I wrote about in the book, the Tongs, and I use that word for them, essentially were underworld organizations. They were, un- they were secret societies. They didn't publish their members. And although they had, cert- they, they had certain uh, civic duties that they performed, but they also, um, almost from the beginning, were involved in, uh, in, in crime as well. How many tongs were there? Well, in the West Coast, there were several competing tongs. In New York, there were more than... The story of the tong wars is mostly the story of two in particular. Uh, one of them is called the Anliang Tong, and that was formed in New York in the 1890s. Um, the, 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 there's a myth that these tongs were all formed in China and they came over, and that's really not true. Uh, they, they had some traditions from China, but this, the Anliantong was, was, was New York-based. And the, uh, their chief antagonist was another organization called the Hipsing Tong, and the Hipsings had come from San Francisco, and they were setting up in the, uh, in the east, they were, uh, in, in cities in the east at the time. Um, the Anliangs got started basically because the diversions that the Chinese in New York's Chinatown had were illegal. Um, first of all, I should remind you that this was uh, the Chinese were mostly excluded from coming into the United States after 1882, and um, in particular, Chinese women did not really come in any large numbers. So it was essentially a bachelor society, and these were men who worked hard for six days a week, and in the evenings and on Sundays they were looking for diversions, and there were really three of them. They were they were not particularly drinkers. Um, there was gambling, there was opium, and there was prostitution. And gambling in particular was lucrative and very, very popular. But when the authorities found out about a gambling hole, they would shut it down because it was against the law. And what a particular man named Tom Lee figured out was that if he could organize all of the bosses of the gambling halls and tax them, he could use the proceeds to pay off the police and to pay off the aldermen so that they would essentially leave them unmolested and the Chinese could gamble the way they wanted to. It enriched him and his friends, but it also provided a service uh, for everybody who wanted to be involved in that particular vice. So Tom Lee was the leader of the Anliangs. Uh, that's right. He was also sort of the putative uh, mayor of Chinatown. That's not really a uh, was not really an elective office. Um, but yes, and, and Tom Lee was the undisputed leader up until his death of the Anliang Tongs. You say in the book that the Anliangs were selling protection from the police. The Hip right. Sings were selling protection from themselves. Right. The Hip Sings. Uh, the Anliangs were making so much money. It was so lucrative that, that uh, and since nature, or at least capitalist nature, abhors a vacuum, the Hipsings decided that they wanted in on the racket. And um, every time they tried to um, make some inroads, they wound up getting their teeth handed to them because the Anliangs and the police were in it together. All the Anliangs had to do was report them, and the police would arrest them, or they'd get beaten up, or something bad would happen to them. And then they got smart. 
And they realized that Tammany Hall, which of course was the, the democratic political machine that was running New York at this point, and that Tom Lee was in cahoots with, Tammany Hall had enemies. Uh, there was uh, there was a real there were there were several social movements that were trying to crack down on corruption in New York City, and none uh, as famous as one called the Society for the Prevention of Crime, uh, which was run by a um, a minister named the Reverend Parkhurst Charles Parkhurst, and Parkhurst was. Um, uh, he, he would uh, he would basically criticize Tammany Hall in sermons, and he got a lot of publicity. In fact, the organization became known as the Parkhurst Society. And the Hipsings figured out that if they could form an alliance with the Parkhursts, then they had a, a, a powerful partner that could give the Onleungs as good as they got. So the, in order to do this, since the Parkhursts were basically for cleaning up Chinatown, the Hipsings persuaded them that they, too, wanted to clean up Chinatown and the, um, the sweetheart arrangement between the Anlyangs and the police and, um, and get rid of gambling and, and other vices in Chinatown. It was a ruse. They weren't interested in doing that at all. They just wanted it on the action. So Tom Lee was the leader of the Anlyang, but a guy by the name of Mock Duck was the leader of the Hipsing, right? Right. And, and, and Tom Lee was sort of an elder statesman. He was much older. Mock Duck was a young Turk, and um, he was quite ruthless. He, uh, he was described in the newspapers as, as almost effeminate. He was slightly built, but he was um, uh, you didn't mess with Mock Duck. Uh, he really was ruthless. He was involved in a lot of killings, even though he generally was not on the scene when they happened. Kids thought he had supernatural powers, right? They did, indeed. That's right. There were lots of legends about Mock Duck. And I've got to tell you, doing the research on him was not, not easy because uh, pretty much any Google search on Mock Duck mostly gives you uh, vegetarian recipes. <laughs> what did people believe he could do? Oh, uh, read minds, see around corners, things like that. I mean, people didn't. Children did. Why but, did they think that about Mock Duck? Well, it's like any figure. Uh, the popular, in the popular imagination, they acquire supernatural powers, mostly because everybody was afraid of Mock Duck, uh, because he was so ruthless. Um, he was said to wear a chainmail vest underneath his uh, shirt, and, um, and again, associated with lots of, uh, lots of murders. So you, you gave him wide berth when you could. So when exactly did the violence between these two groups start? The violence started just almost exactly at the turn of the century, 1899-1900. So that's when the killings really started. And um, the first Tong War was, um, I think it went through 1906. I'm not looking at my notes right now, but I'm pretty sure it was 1900 and 1906. That one was about gambling. And, uh, and there, were, there, were, there were killings back and forth, and there were also um, other kinds of crimes. Once somebody was put in front of a court for doing a, a, a crime, for, for killing someone, then there was jury tampering and there was witness threatening and things like that as well. What would typically set off the violence between the Tongs? There were four Tong Wars that I was able to isolate, and they really were different. They were started for different reasons. The first Tong War really was about gambling and who was going to control gambling in the Chinese quarter. The second Tong War, which the Anlyangs did not fight with the Hipsings but with a different organization, was really about the ownership, and, and, I, and I use that word in quotes, um, and murder of a woman. And the third one, which went from 1912 to 1913, it was short, was about opium. And the fourth one, which was the longest, that went about 1924, 1933, that was was started by a defection, somebody who was kicked out of the Anliangtongs and and joined the Hipsings, and he knew a lot of secrets. Um, So that was a virtual declaration of war. 
What was interesting to me was that while you had four wars and they had very, very different um, reasons to start, what eventually happened in all of them was it morphed from a conflict over whatever it was that started it into a conflict over face. And face is a term that we use in English as well, but in, in Asia it's even more developed. It's, um, uh, in the case of the Tong Wars, what it really meant was you couldn't absorb the last blow without giving back. So um, once face is at stake, people just keep going back and killing back and forth. It's very, very hard to stop it. And in the case of all these Tong Wars, it took protracted negotiations to stop them. Speaking of face, there was one incident where one of these gang members cut off the nose of someone, right? He was butchered on his own ironing board. It was the single most um, um, violent and horrifying act that I found in the whole time. I was doing the research. Yeah, these guys were especially violent. They used things like meat cleavers. Yeah, initially they started with knives and meat cleavers because that's all they had. Eventually they moved on to guns. And then sometimes, a couple of places, they used bombs. Uh, toward the end of the Tong Wars, they had, uh, somebody had mastered the technology of TNT. The Hipsings pretty much blew up a couple of rooms in the Anlian Clubhouse at one point. You write that what proved to be a watershed moment in the war, or one of the wars, was the massacre at the Chinese Theater on Doyers Street? Right. What happened there? Well, the, the, uh, the Chinese Theater was more or less understood to be neutral territory. Nothing bad ever really happened there. Uh, you'd go after a day of a hard day at the office or, or at, the, at the laundry um, to, to take in a Chinese opera. It was also called the Chinese Opera House, and it uh, occupied a storefront on Doyers. The building, again, is still there. Um, but um, the Hip Sings had, um, had violence planned that night, and they sent some shooters in with guns under their tunics. And at a particular point in the play, they set off some firecrackers, so there was chaos. And then they shot into the crowd. And initially, everybody thought that it was random violence, but it wasn't, because the only ones that were hit were Anliangs, and I think four of them died. And it was a watershed. At that, up until that point, um, you could have written off the violence in Chinatown as sort of, as sort of one-offs. You know, people killing other people, maybe for a personal grudge or something like that. But after that, it was really clear that it was a gang war. And New Yorkers knew gang wars when they saw them. They'd seen the Italians and the Irish to them, and this was very much the same thing. This kind of catapulted, I think, the Chinese into that category. Yeah, a lot of Hollywood's attention has been focused on the history of Italian and Irish gangs in New York City. Why do you think that Chinese gangs haven't gotten as much attention over the years? Well, I think they actually may be getting more, to tell you the truth. Believe it or not, we've already been approached about somebody who wants to make a movie out of the book. Um, I think it's just harder to... Um, uh, part of it, I guess, is the traditional um, sensationalizing of everything that went on in Chinatown. Um, there, there wasn't really a lot of straight history written about Chinatown until relatively recently. In fact, Chinese-American history generally was a neglected area. It was only about 30 years ago that anybody really got interested in it. It was like black history and, and women's history. If it wasn't the history of sort of mainstream whites, it really wasn't covered. So, it, you know, it's not like nobody's made movies about the Tong Wars. It's just that they were dreadful and they were inaccurate. I can show you a clip from 19, I think it was 1926 or 27, with Edward G. Robinson as a Tong man, a nice Jewish boy from New York playing a Chinese. And, uh, and a lot of the stuff that was done was dreadful. What inspired but, your interest in this topic? Well, you know, I'm a, uh, I've actually written a couple of other books before this about people that you might call Chinese-American heroes. One of them was called The First Chinese American, and it was about a Chinese activist who uh, fought the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, set up the first uh, Chinese newspaper in New York, actually is the person credited with coining the term Chinese American. 
But in the process of writing these books, I kept coming on references to the tongs, and I realized that I knew surprisingly little about them. I kind of thought I ought to know more about them than I actually did. And, you know, part of the reason was that they were secret societies. They didn't publicize what they did. And the other was that a lot of what was written about them was garbage. And so I determined that I just wanted to get to the bottom of it. I wanted to understand who they were and why they fought. And, um, and that's kind of what, um, what uh, propelled me into this. You mentioned the killing of a woman as part of the violence between the Tongs. But was she just an innocent person in all of that? Oh, very innocent, yes. Um, this was the second war, and it was fought with an organization called the Four Brothers Society, which was actually one of those family associations that I had spoken of earlier. So the Hipsons weren't involved in this. And um, this woman was brought over from China probably as a concubine slash prostitute in San Francisco. And she was rescued uh, by a, a Christian mission in San Francisco. She stayed there for a while, and she married a man who brought her to New York. And that man joined the Anliang Tong. So when her original owners, and I use that term in quotes, came to claim her, and she refused to go back with them, they said, fine, she doesn't have to come back, but you owe us $3,000. Um, and uh, he went to his Tong, and he said, do I really have to pay them? And the Tong ruled that he did not, and that's what started the war, that there was a grudge between these two organizations. And the very first thing they did to start the war was a brutal murder of this innocent woman. You also write about the death of a 22-year-old white missionary who was mm -hmm. caught up in one battle. Yeah, that's probably the most famous murder that took place in New York Chinatown at the turn of the century, Elsie Siegel. She was a missionary who was having affairs, as far as we know, with two Chinese men in Chinatown, one of whom, uh, in a fit of jealousy, killed her and left her in a trunk. He was never captured, but uh, his, his, uh, one of his partners was, and, they, uh, and it, it related to the Tong Wars, essentially, because, um, because he had belonged to one of the Tongs. They were not actually involved in fighting this. Um, but, it, but it got a tremendous amount of publicity, and it was dreadful for the Chinese because it brought out all sorts of latent racism. If a white woman was murdered by a Chinese, then um, it, it was an opportunity for a lot of people to criticize the Chinese and to make their lives harder. Yeah, I was going to ask the question, how did the media cover the Tong Wars? Well, the media was uh, really my savior in a way. Um, the, uh, th there's very little left uh, of the Chinese newspapers and things for that era. And the Chinese themselves did not leave a lot in the way of written records. The, the basic um, outline of the wars I actually got from the New York Sun and the New York Tribune and the New York World and the New York Times. New York had about a dozen um, dailies in, in those days. And they, they covered the goings-on in Chinatown in surprising detail. The problem was that they were the work of white reporters, none of whom spoke Chinese. They had to use Chinese sources, and um, very often they couldn't tell when they were getting played by one of the Chinese uh, sources or another. They wanted them to report in a certain way. So it was a process of sifting through that, um, the newspaper coverage, to figure out who was telling the truth and who was probably not, or who was duped. And then in addition to that set of sources, and that was quite rich, actually. There was a lot, a lot written about it. Um, there were government records. I went through census records and ship passenger records and uh, vital records like marriages and, and deaths and things like that. But also there's a special group of records that, there, that are in the National Archives that are called the Chinese Exclusion Files. And what that essentially was was that if a Chinese um, who was legally in this country wanted to go back to China for a visit, 
Um, if he wanted to come back to the United States when he was done, he would apply to the government for a pre-investigation of status, which essentially meant asking the government, if I go back to China, will you let me back in the United States? And um, the U.S. government was paranoid that Chinese would leave and other Chinese would come to take their place. So they would sit the person down and ask uh, dozens and dozens of intrusive questions about his life, who his business partners were, um, who he was married to, his brothers and sisters, his uncles and aunts. And they would also ask about the village back in China that he came from and whether grandma had bound feet or not. Lots of really detailed questions that were asked for fairly nefarious purposes back at the turn of the century. But today, for genealogists and for historians, they're, they're, they're absolute gold. And they really helped me in writing the book to round out some of these characters that otherwise would have been two-dimensional. How long did it take you to write this book? About a year and a half, I'd say. These Tong Wars spanned over the course of a number of years, but what was the moment that law enforcement, the government, finally said, we need to do something, we need to stop this once and for all? Well, there, there, there wasn't one moment of that. That was constant. And they tried all sorts of things, mediating, shutting down the gambling halls. At one point, they threw out all of the single white women who lived in Chinatown because they thought prostitution was one of the problems. But by the, late, the mid to late 20s, the city government really was throwing up its hands. They just didn't know how to stop the wars. And that last war, the one I was talking about from 1924 and 1933, actually metastasized and was fought in probably a dozen cities of the East and the Midwest. It wasn't just New York. And when New York City threw up its hands, the federal government stepped in. And um, the federal government first announced any Chinese who was convicted of a crime would be deported upon the um, uh, completion of his sentence. And then they went further. They decided that um, they were going to do identity checks of everyone in Chinatown, and if they didn't have the right papers to stay in the United States, uh, they would be deported. And they essentially sent people in. They dragged people from their beds. Anybody who looked Chinese got hauled in and checked over. And if they had uh, the right papers, they were released. And if they didn't, they were sent off to, um, to Ellis Island. So, and, and the idea behind it was, um, if we get rid of these people, these are the troublemakers. But, of course, there was no indication at all that it was undocumented Chinese who were the troublemakers. It, it, was, it was almost as if the, if the only way to stop the violence in Chinatown was to get rid of all of its Chinese, then the, 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 the government was alarmingly eager to step up and do this. And that, of course, was unprecedented. They did not treat other immigrant no. groups that way. No, absolutely not. Well, there was, there was never an exclusion act for Italians and Irish people and Jews and things like that. It was just the Chinese who were singled out. So how long did it take to get these wars under control? Well, actually, um, I, won't say, I don't think anybody else got them under control. I think they sort of died out for some good reasons in the 1930s, they, the, the largest of which was the Depression. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese weren't invested in equities. It wasn't the stock market fall that did it to them, but they, the business in Chinatown relied on other people. And so by the... Um, uh, by the first, uh, probably by 1930, something like 150 Chinese restaurants had closed. By 1931, something like 25% of all the Chinese in the United States were out of work. And they, interestingly enough, they didn't go to the soup kitchens that were set up by the charitable organizations. They went to their tongs for help. There was a soup kitchen set up on Doyer Street in the, in the storefront that had once housed the Chinese theater. But all the pictures of the people lined up in front of it are whites and blacks. Uh, the Chinese didn't go there. They, they looked to their tongs. And the tongs um, were hard-pressed to um, uh, take care of all the people who didn't have jobs anymore and didn't have any money. 
So that was the first drain on the purse. The second reason was that in 1931, the Japanese invaded China, and they were and they really uh, laid waste to the place. And there was a lot of pressure on them to send money back to help um, their compatriots in China. So that was, the, that was the financial stuff. The other reasons were that um, by the 1930s, most of the Chinese in New York no longer lived in Chinatown. They had followed their businesses, the laundries and the restaurants, up into the boroughs and across the river into New Jersey. Um, and a, a larger and larger percentage of them were American-born. And that was just a consequence of the Exclusion Act, because if they, they weren't immigrating, uh, those who were, could find women to marry, and a lot of them were marrying whites at this point because there weren't a lot of Chinese women, um, if they were American-born and they went to school in America and they weren't um, particularly resident in Chinatown, then they saw a lot less reason to join a Tong. So um, basically they kind of wore themselves out with all of the pressures on them. And they, I won't say that they ever learned to like each other, but they learned to coexist. And after the mid-30s, really, the violence was over. What happened to Tom Lee and what happened to Mock Duck? Well, Tom Lee died in, I think it was 1917, and he had the biggest funeral anyone had ever seen in Chinatown. Um, lots of people came to it. I think Al Smith came to it, as a matter of fact, um, several other fairly famous people. Mokduk lived longer, um, and he got quieter as time went on. And uh, he wasn't heard from for many years, and then he showed up in Newark, New Jersey, um, uh, somebody had tried to kill him, I think. Uh, and it became clear that he had been quietly running things for the hip sing tong, but, but really behind the scenes. But even he didn't have the, um, all of the uh, violent instincts of his youth. He lived, I think, into the 1940s. He's buried in Queens, am I right? I think I saw that in your book. Yeah, I think it's Queens. I've forgotten the name of the cemetery. but it's uh, um, uh, and, and he's buried, uh, interestingly enough, he shares a headstone with another man, and I have no idea how he fit into the picture. I did some research on him. He was divorced, and I think he was uh, basically a sailor. And maybe he was a hip sing, which is why the, uh, the, uh, the headstone was shared. But he wasn't, Mokduk was not buried next to either of his wives, the Chinese woman whom I believe he did not marry in a legal ceremony, or the, um, uh, the white woman that he, that, he, that he married later on. Despite all of this research that you were able to uncover, what are some of the questions that you still have related to the Tongs? Oh, boy. I wish I could have talked to them, um, uh, some of these guys. Uh, Tom Lee was a, was a, an interesting figure. Um, for one thing, he changed his name when he came into the, uh, the United States. He became a citizen. His name was Wong. And all of a sudden, he was Tom Lee. And um, lots of people who were in the Tong who were ostensibly related to him were also named Lee. So I couldn't quite figure out what was going on with that. Um, I, I would have liked to understand what life was like in the clubhouse. I didn't ever get much of that because the reporters never really went in. I could have done a little bit more about how they made decisions and, uh, and who was in the room when that happened. How fearful were New Yorkers to go to Chinatown even just to have a meal during all of this? Uh, most of the time, not at all. But when the wars were going on uh, and, or in the immediate aftermath of it, then the tourist trade tanked and, and Chinatown got quiet. And that happened several times. So it sounds, though, as you said earlier, you can take a nice walking tour around Chinatown today and kind of revisit this history with your book in hand. That's right. It's really lots of fun. Yeah. There's a, there's a, in fact, I did a little article on it. It's a website called Signature, uh, which has just that. It's essentially it's a walking tour up Martin and down uh, Pell and over Doyer Street, pointing out the places where this stuff happened. Yeah, Pell obviously figures very prominently right. in this story. Mm-hmm. 
We referenced that you speak Mandarin fluently. What is your background, Scott? Well, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Newark, New Jersey, <laughs> um, and I, uh, I was an American history major, but I, um, right after I graduated from college, this was the 1970s, I went off to Taiwan for a couple of years to teach English and was able to pick up um, basic Mandarin, which in the 1970s was really not a marketable skill here in the United States. Um, I came back and got another degree in education, and then... Um, uh, got down to Washington. I was working here for a member of Congress, and in 1979, all of a sudden, we had full diplomatic relations with China. And uh, speaking Chinese was the only thing that ever made me different from anybody else in Washington. So I signed on to an organization that sent me off to China for a few years to help promote trade. And um, then eventually I joined a PR firm, Burson Marsteller, and they sent me back to Asia as well. So altogether, I've got about eight years in, um, uh, in China. Um, studied Mandarin for a lot of that time and Cantonese for part of the time. And when I came home, it really, uh, I thought about it for a while, and I realized that Chinese-American history was a really wonderful area for me to get involved in because I could bring my Chinese skills and also my American history uh, major. And also I'm a genealogist, so I kind of know how to pick up records from, uh, about people as well. And um, so I kind of put that all together and started to write about early Chinese-American history, which was an underserved area. Um, there really was not a lot done on it that was objective up until maybe 20, 30 years ago. So this is now my third book in the, uh, in the area of early Chinese-American history. The book is Tong Wars, the Untold Story of Vice, Money, and Murder in New York's Chinatown. Scott Seligman, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You can find out more about Scott Seligman, his book Tong Wars, and all of his other work online at SeligmanOnline.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.